Now, the start of the week and plenty on the radio from the approach of Storm Barra to the Don Tidy kidnapping case and the language of cultural identity. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. It's not the where you're from uh, because I tend to go, I'm Irish. Yes. It's then the where are you really from? And that usually is preceded by a no, you know, no, you're not Irish. Where are you really from? Storm Barra is forming at the moment in the middle of the Atlantic. It's undergoing what we call explosive cyclogenesis, which the Americans call a weather bomb. Hail freedom, hail the dawn of liberty. From seven long centuries of woe and war, our land once more is ours to make or mar. And we'll start here on Morning Ireland and the commemoration of the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty 100 years ago. Shane McElhatton was in London for analysis of one of the seminal moments in Irish history. 100 years ago today, the Anglo-Irish Treaty was signed by Michael Collins at Downing Street. The rest is history. Shane McElhatton is the series editor of the Decade for Commemorations of Commemorations for Radio 1 and he's there for Morning Ireland in London this morning. Shane, where exactly are you? Morning, Audrey. I'm in the RTE Roadcaster studio outside 22 Hans Place, Knightsbridge, London. One of the city's smartest addresses, as it was 100 years ago, when it was the headquarters of the Irish delegation at the negotiations on the Anglo-Irish Treaty. It was right here that one of the most momentous decisions ever made in Irish history was made. It was from here, pretty much from where I'm sitting, that a hundred years and seven hours ago, the delegation, Arthur Griffith, Michael Collins, George Gavin Duffy, Robert Barton and Eamon Duggan, returned to Downing Street to sign the treaty with the British Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, and his team. It was not a happy journey. The Irish delegates had argued furiously for hours in the building beside me over the offer the British had made the night before. The Prime Minister Lloyd George had warned the Irish delegation they had to decide that night whether to accept or reject the terms on offer. If they rejected, the War of Independence was back on in three days. The reason for the agonising was the terms on offer were described by the British as the best that were going to be made. They held out the prospect of a British withdrawal, Irish independence and everything that a free country could wish for, the law, economy, finance, health, agriculture, even defence. It was more than any of the empire's dominions had, like Australia or Canada. The problem was what was missing. Ireland would not be a republic. It would be a member of the British Commonwealth, would swear an oath of allegiance, the British monarch would be head of state, Northern Ireland would, if it wished, and it did, remain part of the United Kingdom, and the British Navy would retain access to several ports. Here was the dilemma. Real practical independence of a kind Ireland had never known, but the republic that had been declared in 1916 and then defended in the War of Independence was to be consigned to history. That was a pill too bitter for many Irish men and women to swallow, and the the delegates knew it. Collins himself was dismayed at how so many of the best fighters and the best women of common demand who made the war possible were repulsed by what was agreed here. They regarded it as a price worth paying to the delegation. They knew that in Ireland all hell was going to break loose. In the end, as the night turned from the Monday into the Tuesday, the Irish made their decision and began the short journey back to Downing Street, a decision that has echoed down a hundred years. So how will you be marking it later in the programme? Who will you hear from? Yeah, I'll be here in the RTE Roadcaster studio with Irish historians Heather Jones and Morris Walsh. We're going to be discussing the hard questions. The hardest of them is this one. Were the lads mugged? 
Did they go into Downing Street, get bluffed by David Lloyd George with his ridiculous theatrical deadlines and threats of war and come out in a political sense without their trousers? Because there is a view in Ireland that this was a complete disaster. And there was another battle of Kinsale where over one night all that could have been won was lost. The nationalists of the six counties abandoned to their fate, the dream of a republic was crushed and the slide to the civil war began. We're going to be putting that view to the test as well as the alternative view which says look hard, look hard at the concessions the British made before and during the negotiations in their determination to settle the conflict and get a deal over the line. It was seen as as near to complete independence as could be hoped for and a platform to build on. We're also going to be looking at the price that was paid by the men on both sides in that room in Downey Street for the signatures they put on the treaty. Then later, it says in the papers, 1921, John S. Doyle reviews the newspapers from 100 years ago about the Anglo-Irish Treaty. Dark clouds of war scattered, says the headline in the Freeman's Journal, over a report that an agreement was reached at the peace conference in London early this morning. Most papers report from 10 Downing Street that when the Sinn Féin delegates were stepping into their automobile to depart at 2.15 this morning, Mr Michael Collins was asked for the news. Not a word, he said. Are you coming back, he was asked. I can't say, he replied. The Freeman's Journal praises what it calls the honourable practice of the Irish delegates in refusing to make any statement pending the publication of the official communique. Not a tittle have they communicated to the outside world, says the Irish Independent approvingly in an editorial. The New York Times reports that a few minutes after Mr Collins's remarks, a cabinet minister came out and said the news was not at all bad. He stepped back into the Premier's residence and came out again then and declared an agreement has in fact been reached. The Freeman's Journal says that the Anglo-Irish Peace Treaty will rank in history with some of the most epoch-making events in the world's annals. The feud and friction of centuries come to an end, says the Independent. If the treaty reconciles Ireland to the Empire, the Irish Times says, nobody will welcome it more gladly than the loyalists of Southern Ireland. For them, Ireland does not exist and never will exist apart from the empire which the blood of their sires and sons has cemented. Lord Birkenhead, one of the British negotiators quoted in The Independent, described the decision of the British cabinet as the most vital for 240 years and said, never can the old quarrel be the same. And in what the paper calls a remarkable tribute to the Irish delegates, he said... I am certain that they will go back to Ireland taking their lives in their hands to fight their battle as confidently as I and my colleagues go in to battle on this side. The Times of London says the Sinn Féin delegates have proved themselves courageous statesmen. Instead of pursuing the shadow of an Irish union enforced by legislation, they have played boldly for the substance. The Belfast newsletter is not impressed at this morning's developments. The editorial writer says that the government has dragged the honour of Great Britain in the mire, gaining nothing but the contempt of its enemies while losing the confidence of its friends. The Freeman's Journal sets out the four forms of oath that were discussed at the talks. As the paper notes, the Irish delegates said that a personal oath of allegiance to the Irish Free State, 
and to the British Commonwealth would be freely taken and scrupulously honoured, whereas an oath of allegiance to the King would be taken by many Irishmen only under duress and would therefore be valueless. The text of the treaty is remarkably carried in full in the New York Times, right across the front page. Irish free state created, Ulster cannot stop it, say two headlines. The Freeman's Journal representative in London notes that the British Prime Minister, Mr Lloyd George, signed the treaty with the same pen with which he signed the Versailles Treaty three years ago. In another handwriting detail, the paper reports that the signatures in Gaelic characters of the Irish delegates greatly interested the British delegates, and Mr Austin Chamberlain submitted them to long and searching scrutiny through his monocle. The Independent has a poem to mark the signing of the treaty. By HNR, it starts with the lines, Hail freedom, hail the dawn of liberty. From seven long centuries of woe and war, our land once more is ours to make or mar. John S. Doyle, then it was back to Shane McElhatton in London. Good morning from London. Uh, You're joining us here in our mobile studio outside number 22 Hans Place, Knightsbridge, the London headquarters of the Irish delegation that signed the Anglo-Irish Treaty 100 years and about six hours ago. Now, as I'm looking around Hans Place, it's all very ordinary here today, but the scenes here in those early hours of 6th of December were unprecedented. There was a thick and freezing London fog, typical of the time, armed men standing and patrolling right where we're sitting, There was a line of cars outside the house, engines running, engines turned off, engines running again, as the members of the delegation argued back and forth, are we going back to Downing Street to accept the terms the British have offered us, or are we sending back a message that they were rejected? And a short distance away in Downing Street, the British negotiators were looking at each other, increasingly convinced they'd never see the Irish delegates again. In the end, those arguing for acceptance, Arthur Griffith and Michael Collins, then Eamon Duggan, persuaded Robert Barton and George Gavin Duffy to join them on the journey back to Downing Street from here. I'm joined in our mobile studio by Irish historians Morris Walsh, author of Bitter Freedom, Ireland in a Revolutionary World, and Heather Jones, Professor of Modern Contemporary European History at University College London and author of For King and Country, The British Monarchy and the First World War. Morris, do you want to set the scene for us? Um, Because people in Ireland take so much of this for granted. Oh, yeah, they went over. It's like an EU summit, you know, an ordinary summit. But really, the implications are simply not grasped anymore. What what do you think is the most important thing for people to try and imagine as how what the significance of, of what was going on here was? There was a template for this, but the usual Irish politicians in negotiating in London were constitutional nationalists. This These were the representatives of a guerrilla movement, which um, had proclaimed their struggle throughout the British Empire. And now here they were coming to the heart of London to negotiate uh, some, a settlement. So uh, an unprecedented situation. Lloyd George acknowledged you know, we've, never, we've never had revolutionaries in town before. And they attracted a lot of attention for that. Obviously, a lot of attention was directed at Michael Collins' press attention because he was the, the mystery man of the delegation, etc. But... They, they stayed here in this extraordinarily well-appointed part of London. It still is, in fact, I think, 
by the looks of it now, it's, it's, the, it's the residents of Russian oligarchs. But at that time, it, it was a very, they dressed in their suits, they had Rolls Royces bring them to Downing Street. In other words, they acted at all times like the representatives of a state, and a state may be in waiting, but certainly presented themselves as a state, just as they might have presented themselves if they got to Paris on those terms for the Treaty of Versailles. Two years earlier, yes, indeed. Um, uh, Heather, could it be seen as a window of opportunity that, that had presented itself? And there were two things that, that were um, happening at the time that allowed this window to, to exist. The pause of the war, independence, but also pol British political arrangements. Yes, there's a coalition government, so any, any British government that acts at this moment won't face op an, a, a strong opposition in the House of Commons. So the fact that the Tories and Liberals are in government together means they can both share this moment of, of peacemaking. And if we think, Morris mentioned Versailles, the arc that, that, that the Irish have travelled from being in Versailles and not being actually given any access to negotiation to being here in the centre of London and, you know, in, in the West End as delegates uh, negotiating with, with the British Empire is quite dramatic. And that, that moment of truce in the summer of 21 is really key to bringing that about uh, and the coalition and the fact that, uh, that, that there isn't going to be a Tory uh, obstruction to anything Lloyd George does. So the, there was no Tory ambush waiting for him because the Tories were in the room with him? Yeah, no. There, there, there would, the Tories, they could bring their backbenchers, their hardliners along. He'd also got rid of Boner Law, who's in France, who's one of the most hardline uh, unionist figures. Also, in Ireland, the situation has changed too. The Southern Unionists have come on board with accepting a potential Dominion solution. And we've had the King's speech indicating the monarchy is also pushing now for a Dominion solution as well. So a lot of things have changed in the summer of 21. Professor Heather Jones and Morris Walsh with Shane McElhatton in London from Morning Ireland. Then later on Today with Claire Byrne, Professor Dermot Ferriter on the signing of the treaty. There are very striking photographs of grave-faced politicians in London 100 years ago. I was looking at them this morning. You could see them. You could see the pressure that they were under and they're caught in, in the light of the flashbulbs. But think about those who are waiting at home for all of the focus on the negotiators and, and how important those politicians were. Think about those who are waiting. On paper, there were 112,650 members of the IRA in Ireland at that time. There were thousands of common man members. They were waiting to see what would transpire. Many of them, perhaps we could say, had unrealistic expectations about what might transpire in London. But we have to start thinking about them and how they dealt with the news as it came out. And over the course of the couple of days after the signing of the treaty, there would have been widespread, obviously, press coverage about the contents of the treaty. Some of them were horrified at what they regarded as a great betrayal. And there are very telling moments during the treaty debates where politicians and soldiers. And remember, many of them were mm. two sides of the same coin. Cahill Brewer makes reference to the men who count. And he's talking, of course, about the IRA. What will they make of that? Historians estimate that over 70% of the IRA were opposed to the treaty. About 12,000 uh, common man members uh, anti-treaty. So when you consider that some form of conflict, I think, was inevitable. There were also many soldiers who believed that they had brought the Republic into being and it wasn't for politicians to give it away. And that might be a simplistic narrative, the idea that they gave away the Republic in London because it was never on offer in the first place. But that was a very strongly held view. So when you consider that, some form of conflict was inevitable. There were also those, including Liam Lynch, 
who was later to assert that it was up to soldiers to hew the way to freedom for politicians to follow. So again, you can get that sense of, of the concerns about the balance between the, the military perspective and the political perspective. But we should acknowledge there were various attempts to bring both sides together. Mm-hmm. The first six months of 1922, they're fraught, but there are various attempts to try and maintain army mutiny. And even both sides of the treaty divide after the Doyle vote in January. They meet in February again in the Mansion House. They agree to postpone elections. And again, the primary preoccupation is keeping army mutiny, uh, or sorry, army unity. So when you consider those impulses at work in the first few months, you could say there were valiant attempts made to try and prevent conflict. But ultimately, those who had dug their heels in by February and March 1922 uh, were going to become more entrenched. Can we indulge in a bit of whataboutery now? Because just reading all this stuff over the weekend, the controversy around De Valera, the description by some historians as, you know, why why wasn't he in London? It was mystifying that he wasn't there. Had he been in London, would the outcome have been any different? It could have been. Um, But you could argue that it was unlikely. He had been over in London in July. He had met David Lloyd George one-on-one before the formal negotiations began in October. He knew what was an offer. He knew the limitations. What he was trying to do was ride two horses. I mean, he was trying to be involved in negotiations, but he remained in Dublin. And there was an arrogance to that, you could argue. He was also still trying to work out how he could persuade the more hardline to accept the idea of a compromise, something that was less Mm -hmm. uh, than the Republic. But ultimately, de Valera would not have been able to achieve uh, a Republic. And I don't think he would have given more attention uh, to the Ulster question either, because even when he offered his alternative to the treaty, the so-called document number two, um, he wasn't suggesting anything radically different in relation to the Ulster question. So that issue would have remained unresolved. But you could argue that as a more experienced politician and one who was so fastidious with words and phrases that he would have been much more careful than the other negotiators about the way particular clauses of the treaty were phrased and perhaps not given as many hostages to fortune. Or perhaps he knew there was going he, there was going to have to be a compromise. He knew that, he could see it coming and so it suited him to be in Ireland that's and away very, from it. That's a very valid argument and it's an argument that has been made and you can see that anger coming out during the treaty debates as well when Arthur Griffith and Collins mm-hmm. in particular challenge him because he sent them over with plenipotentiary powers. He sent them over to do their utmost for Ireland which they were able to say during the treaty debates they had done. Professor Dermot Verriter from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the afternoon, Head of Forecasting at Met Aaron Evelyn Cusack was telling Brian Dobson about the approach of Storm Barra. Met Aaron has issued its most severe warning, a status red marine storm warning for many west and southwest coasts tomorrow morning with the arrival of Storm Barra. It says winds will reach violent Storm Force 11 on Irish coastal waters from Roaches Point to Valencia to Eris Head. An orange level wind warning is also in place for counties Clare, Cork, Kerry, Limerick and Galway with a status yellow warning for the rest of the country. Let's talk to Evelyn Cusick, Head of Forecasting at Met Aaron. Um, Evelyn, what's what's heading our way? Hi, Brian. Uh, Storm Barra is forming at the moment in the middle of the Atlantic. It's undergoing what we call explosive cyclogenesis, which means its pressure is falling by... uh, 
the definition of that is 24 hectopascals in 24 hours, but this is actually on the double 50 hectopascals in 24 hours, which the Americans call a weather bomb. And this is heading our way. So those warnings you refer to, um, we're actually just in the process of updating them now. So we're extending our red warning to counties Kerry and Cork, most of really mostly west and south Cork but and we're extending orange into southern counties through Waterford, Wexford and up along the east coast. So it's going to be a multifaceted uh, weather system quite complex and lasting for a fairly long time, lasting through tomorrow, tomorrow night and into Wednesday. So Brian, it, conditions will vary from place to place countrywide. It's going to be very bad tomorrow morning everywhere with heavy rain and driving southeast easterly winds but then it's going to turn beautifully sunny and the winds calm down as the low the the Mm -hmm. centre of the storm begins to fan out crossing Ireland the centre of the storm could be a couple of counties wide so the winds would go calm in the Midlands say North Midlands and through the north of the country and then we're going to have the status red warnings in the south and southwest so it really depends on your location and then later tomorrow evening a northerly northwest storm will push back into the west of the country. So my advice is obviously take the advice from the local authorities, from the emergency services and please just get the MetAirn app and type in your location and you'll get your location hour by hour you'll get that forecast because it's going to be really quite variable right through the day tomorrow night and on Wednesday. Yeah but the very latest uh, just to confirm that Evelyn a red weather warning for counties Kerry and Cork from, from early tomorrow morning. Yes, and uh, Goodmore uh, Orange as well. But everywhere, yellow, you know, everywhere there's going to be some yeah. severe weather stra- it's for at least straight a couple of hours. Isn't it? I mean, just looking it's, at the... Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, it's coming straight in, and um, there also there will also be snow for a couple of hours in Donegal and the northwest tomorrow morning as the weather front pushes in from the Atlantic. But right. that will turn back into rain and then just melt away. All right. Okay. Batten down the hatches for Storm Barra. That's Evelyn Cusack from the News at One. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, the language used when talking about nationality and culture, it can be subtle and it can be very blunt. Sophie Musla was talking to Ryan Tuberty in the morning about everyday racism and identity. What is among the most annoying questions somebody can ask you in a given day? <laughs> so the, I mean, it's <laughs> the not, obvious one. The obvious one. It's uh, it's not the where you're from uh, because I tend to go, I'm Irish. Yes. It's then the, where are you really from? And you, that usually is preceded by a no, you know, no, you're not Irish. Where are you really from? Yeah. So that that's, and, and people around me tend to know that, okay, here comes the spiel, like she's <laughs> going to start now. Uh, and I, I don't lecture, but I, I you know, it, I take it sometimes as a learning moment yeah. to show people that there is, you know, that question doesn't land the way you think it lands. Isn't it? A, what, a, what a beautiful way of putting it. Yeah. That it doesn't land the way you think it lands because, no, but where are you really from? Yeah. Uh, people asking that will think, that's cool. I mean, I'm allowed to ask that question, for goodness mm. sake. I mean, you don't look like me. I don't mm-hmm. look like you. So therefore, I'm entitled to ask that mm-hmm. question. But they're wrong. The thing is, 
we tend to ask, I mean, and I've had this conversation so many times over the years. Yeah. People say, well, you know, I get asked that question all the time. I'm from Mullingar. So what's what's the big issue? The question when you ask it to a person from Mullingar is around, well, where in Mullingar are you from? <laughs> but when it's somebody who isn't a typically white person, which is what we've associated Irish people to be this whole time. Yeah. It it comes across as an exclusive question. Um, I'm excluding you. I'm yes. saying that you you don't really, you're not Irish. You don't really belong here. Um, and when I did the talk back in 2016, yeah. I mean, I came to Ireland in 2003. If you stopped 10 people on the street, nine of them were Irish people and you'd have the odd, you know, foreigner. For sure. <laughs> and things have evolved and yeah. things have changed and we've started you know, and I, I talk about how we, we, we've invited a lot of people into the country. We've yeah. started adopting children who are not typically white children. Yes. Um, and the people who've come into the country, people like me, have had children in this country. And these children don't know themselves to be anything other than Irish. Are you, are you, know. you, are you suggesting, Sophie, that we are not homogeneously a pasty-faced, freckled, <laughs> red-headed nation of, well, of, of, of one look only? I would advise you to watch the, the toy show and look, tell me how many... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd advise you to tell me how, how homogeneously white that show was. And it wasn't, yeah. which is a reflection of society. Isn't nowadays. it, though? I mean, exactly. they, 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 you have to reflect society as it's evolved. And this is where it comes down to, as you say, the question that you've been that you were asked. And when you when you came to Ireland the first. So the, I'm bouncing around here in my mm-hmm. head because so many questions I want to ask. <laughs> you, but I will I will alight on this one, which is uh, the question, as I understand it, that you'd rather people ask is, can we talk? Can I ask you about your heritage? Yeah. Uh, rather than saying but where are you really from? And, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's a, a, a classiness to the language, isn't there? It's, it's just a change of instead of where are you really from? Yeah. Well, what's what's your heritage? Or I and I find I found people get very creative. They go, well, Musla isn't a typically Irish last name. Yeah. You know, that's fine. You know, so you, you get that's you understand around, what yeah, they're yeah. trying to say. Or uh, you look like you're new to the parish is another one that I, <laughs> I've been getting recently. I <laughs> Yeah, but you could get that, like you say, if you came from from Clifton to Mullingar, couldn't Absolutely. you? Absolutely. Know, I, I, I moved to Akram uh, four years ago, Akram Wicklow, and yeah. I still get the, oh, you're the new one. Okay. Like, you know, and, and I know of people telling me that we've been in Akram now 20 years and we're still the newbies. So, yeah. Uh, and, and yeah. But even within, if you go back 30 years, as, as was the point you're making, is that if you go from Dublin to Cork and you live in Cork, you're still the blow-in from exactly. Dublin. You know, yeah. there is that, that insular thing we have here. Exactly. So Sophie spoke about her heritage. Uh, so wait, I, no, where are you really from? <laughs> <laughs> I was I was born in Dubai. Okay. Uh, I wouldn't be considered a citizen of Dubai because you you do not acquire citizenship in Dubai by right of birth. Uh, my parents were Palestinian refugees. My grandparents would have been would have left Palestine in 1948. Oh, okay. um, so, so historically loaded story, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my mother uh, would have been a refugee in Lebanon. My father would have been a refugee in Jordan, mm. and they both met in Dubai, where they moved to start a new life and they had me so that's I, I've four or five countries you in really my do. background yeah, yeah there's like a, like a who's who of, of where exactly okay yeah. and Ireland Ireland I've moved to in 2003 so it's almost 20 years now okay uh, and w- I've been here was there a reason of all the countries in all the world I met a fella there you go <laughs> <laughs> Said like a real Irish woman as well. <laughs> you met a fella. I met a fella, and uh, he was working. You know, we we 
he we ended up getting married sure. he came uh, he, I came here and I had no expectations of what I was coming into but um it was very immediate to me that I be- I was comfortable here and in a way that I belonged I think a year in I was thinking I I want to set roots here this is where I belong um and and it's very difficult in a world that is as global and as different as it is nowadays to understand what that means but I think you sometimes think about how easy things come to you how you can integrate what you know you you communicate freely you're able to understand the norms of a society you're yes. able to to take that society in and you and i also to add on to that i'm constantly in awe and i'm constantly admiring what i see in ireland and i think that's why the decision was a no brainer the food and the weather weren't an issue for I, you. I I no problems with the weather. Give me scarves and hats and coats any day. I hate summer. I hate the sun. You I, truly are I've an never Irish one. To- exactly. I've never tolerated the sun. <laughs> uh, the food. I think God, we're we're one of the culinary centers in Europe now, aren't we? So you're okay with yeah, with all no, of that? I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, do, do you have much connection to your Palestinian roots still, or you know, how do you marry the two? It's it's interesting because I've seen the term global citizen being branded around. You mm-hmm. know, pe- some people now tend to call themselves global citizens because, like me, they 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 come from a certain heritage, they live in a different country, mm-hmm. and they choose not to have an affiliation one way or the other. I, I I am very Irish affiliated, I think, and I still have a lot of compassion, a lot of respect for my heritage. But even if you talk to my family, I was you know I was visiting family. In early in 2020, just mm. before the the pandemic happened, and uh, they were going around serving coffee, and they're like, "Oh, just make tea for the Irish one." Okay. Yeah. So the you know yeah. even in conversations, yeah. it'll be the, the Irish Sophie because she's she's no longer one of us. She's she's different now. Is so. that done in humor or is it more nuanced? Oh, it's a bit nuanced, but I mean, they it's there's no malice in it. They just accept that she's found her home and she's yeah. found her tribe, and her tribe isn't necessarily doing the same things we do. Why did you uh, go to the uh, trouble? Um, of of delivering a TED talk on this subject of where you're really from. Do you know it was one of these things that happened when the universe just presents itself to you, and sure. you know that you have to step up. So the I saw the call for the speakers, and I think the theme was tomorrow imagined or something like yes. that. And I immediately knew what I was going to talk about. It just came immediately to me. So I filmed, I remember setting up my laptop, I filmed my intro and what I, you know, my my application mm-hmm. and sent it in, within five minutes. Um, it just, I knew exactly what I wanted to say. It was a given that this mm-hmm. would happen. Uh, it, it, your speech features in this book, uh, Irish Women's Speeches, uh, Voices that, that Rocked the System, which of course was by, is uh, edited by uh, Sonia. Tiernan, congratulations for Thank being in, in, included in that because that's Thank quite you. something and it's very appropriate, I think, that you're there. I'm very humbled. And Ryan asked Sophie about the undocumented people in this country. You know, I was watching the news, uh, Sonia, or Sophie, I should say, the other day um, when I saw uh, a whole bunch of people cheering because the legislation is now shifting to allow uh, undocumented citizens, uh, people to become, mm-hmm. uh, go set themselves on the path to mm-hmm. citizenship. And the footage of them cheering about this, it nearly brought a tear to my eye because mm-hmm. it reminded me of, I always think the immigrant story to this country is so echoed and mirrored in history by the Irish experience in mm-hmm. other countries. Mm-hmm. I, it's so profoundly so. But these people were cheering, saying we did it. And we talk about the undocumented Irish mm-hmm. in America all the time. 
So everyone's looking for a home somewhere. Exactly. And it's about the welcome they get when they get there. And they choose to stay here and to embrace it. That's the other thing. There's always, I mean, the negative side of the story, those who want to exclude people like them and, and who want to deny them citizenship always assume that, you know, there's there's that joke about Schrodinger's uh, refugee. You yeah, know, he's yeah, always on the door, yeah. but he's taken all the jobs. Um, but yeah. they they choose to come in, and they actually work a lot harder. They and yeah. and this is from this isn't just me. This isn't just anecdotal. You can look at a lot of sociology research that will prove to you that they'll choose to work a lot harder. They'll choose to avoid reaching out for any sort of social welfare. They'll choose to kind of establish themselves to teach their children the language, the you know the culture. They'll choose. Sorry to cut across, but they'll choose to do the jobs that people don't want to do now sort of thing just to, to make a, a, the, the bob rather than take it from the state you know not, not that they is broad but yeah. you know but, but they're grateful but a they're grateful ethic. for yeah. the experience and I think for me being part of this country means being grateful for the country and championing the country yeah and, and speaking well of it and, and look we're not perfect there is no perfect country but we, we constantly develop and we constantly strive to be better. And I think that's the point that we have to keep in mind. My, my, one, my one concern with, the, with, with history and how in some ways the pandemic has taken over in terms of the only story in town. But I do think that the story of the direct provision centres in this country will be uh, an ugly point mm-hmm. when we look back in 20 years time. I think it will be something that we won't be greatly proud of, particularly my generation, because then I'll be 75, 80, whatever. And when it's too late to say, let's change it. But you know, all we'll be doing is whoever the Taoiseach is, we might even be born yet, will be yeah. saying sorry in Leinster House. I hope so. I hope so, because that's um, it. It's a very dark bullet against our against our name. It's happening. And it's constantly happening and the news are there and you just choose to listen to it or not, but it is there. Sophie Musler from The Ryan Tuberty Show. And in the afternoon, Mairead called Joe after a very stressful train journey. Yes, I took the 210 train from Dublin to Waterford and I was travelling alone and um, there were two other ladies sitting um, close to me uh-huh. and we had all booked our seats now there was no social distan- distancing whatsoever but more serious than that across uh-huh. the passageway there were two couples who weren't wearing their masks okay. and the um, security man passed up and down and he definitely would have seen that they weren't wearing their masks and I felt very compromised and uh-huh. I didn't know how to approach it and okay. I thought that maybe if, if something wasn't done by someone else that I would discreetly um, bring the matter to the security man's attention okay. but then a very serious lady very serious looking lady got on the train and um, mm-hmm. she started shouting at the people across the passageway and then they started shouting back at her and what, and what, were, became, what, yeah, what was she saying? She was oh saying, you're not wearing your masks okay. and she stood up and she pointed her finger and she said you better put on your masks or I'll call well, the that, security well, man. That, well it's a ticket collector or whatever but they are, they are the guidelines they're in all the ads for Irish Rail. You I ha- know. You have I to know. wear a mask. Yeah there was a loudspeaker beam, you know shouting yeah. it out for the whole journey but this lady 
Lady anyway, I mean, she obviously approached her, you know, in a not too good fashion. And the people across mm. the passageway um, started really shouting back at her. And, and what, were they, what, me, what were they shouting back, Maraid? Well, I don't know their exact words, but it really wasn't pleasant at all. And other what, were they, people, were, were they telling her to get lost? Or were they telling oh, her, absolutely, yeah. Okay, were they telling her we, we have an underlying medical condition, we have no, a medical No, cert. no, no. I wouldn't say they were anti-mask, but... Um, they just took exception to this woman, and I think you know she approached it very badly. But she, but she could yeah. have had, she could have had an underlying condition. She buys a ticket on public transport because we're told on public transport, yeah, uh, there's certain limits on numbers. There's uh, ventilation, and everyone has to wear a mask. Yeah, absolutely. And when she gets on public transport, she sees four people prominently. Not wearing a mask, and at this stage, how long have they been on the train, Maraid? Well, they, this is we're now in. We say Carlo. We come well, from that's Dublin. A, well, that's a good what forty minutes I, an hour. Well, it's more. It's okay. a, well, it's okay. a good hour actually. But um, my point is that she approached it badly, and if she had gone to the security man and said it to him. But it ended up very, very. It was embarrassing to be caught in the middle of it. You know. Well, how did it end up? Well, actually, I just want to make the point that I would have blamed the security man in the first instance for not having, um, insisting on them wearing their masks. Mm-hmm. Do you know? So it ended up anyway that um, the two couples were um, getting off the train at Kilkenny, but, mm-hmm. but the lady beside me insisted that the security man stands in the middle so that... Um, you know, he's, that they would continue to wear their masks and all that. But another point, Joe, was that mm. we weren't asked for our um, vaccination certs. So that meant that, you know, and I, I really regret well, vac- yeah, taking the train at all. Yeah, like. but vaccination certs are not mandatory in public transport. Oh, are they not? No, okay. not as far as I know. Okay. Um, but, but, yeah. but you can see things changing. Tomorrow they change in gyms and... Other yeah, outlets, they have you have to you have to show uh, your your I know. double cert. Um, yeah. But I'm, Maraid, I'm a bit baffled that you that you you're finding fault with the lady who raised the issue. No, who... I'm not finding fault oh, with okay. her. She was perfectly right, but it was the way she approached it. She was shouting at them, and she wasn't. You know, she shouldn't. Actually, I wouldn't have taken them on if I was going to yeah. do anything. I I would have gone discreetly to the security man and said it to him. That's a Maraid on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on today with Claire Byrne, the case I can't forget. This week, the kidnapping of Don Tidy. The massive search operation for Mr. Don Tidy and his kidnappers is being organised from the incident room here at Ratfarnham Garda Station. It's believed to be the biggest operation of its kind. We want to know that our father is well and fit now. And if my father could contact us or the kidnappers could contact us and give us some proof that he is... It's been marvellous to recover Mr Tidy uninjured, but unfortunately our success has been saddened by the death of two very brave young men who died in the hail of fire outside Balnamore today. The Sheehan family have been in the Gardaí almost since the foundation of the state. Grandfather, father and now the son who has so tragically been killed in this particular security operation. When we first heard the news today, we heard the good news. And then came the bad news. It has been very shattering for everybody. How are you feeling, Mr. Tide? 
I might ask you, how do I look? Great, <laughs> great. How do you feel, though? I feel uh, perfectly physically fit and well. However, I personally feel the utmost sadness for the parents and relatives of those who have died. Some very familiar voices there, including the RT reporter Charlie Bird, former Justice Minister Michael Noonan, former Taoiseach Garrett Fitzgerald and supermarket executive Don Tidy, each of them talking about that moment in 1983 when Don Tidy was kidnapped near his home in Dublin. Now, his disappearance led to the largest combined Garda and Army security operation in the history of the state and resulted in the death of two people, Garda Gary Sheehan and Private Patrick Kelly, who were both shot dead by the provisional IRA. The event is the focus of tonight's episode of The Case I Can't Forget on RTE1 television at 9.35, and it will feature a number of those who took part in that search operation, including former soldier PJ Higgins. And PJ is here now. You're very welcome, PJ. Thank you, thanks, for, thanks for joining us today. Can we go back to 1983? And I want you just to remind uh, people what happened in the days just after Don Tidy was kidnapped near his home in Dublin. Well, after Don Tidy was, was kidnapped, you see, there was two incidents going on concurrently. Shergar had gone missing as well, and Don Tidy was after being kidnapped. So both of them ran concurrently. But we didn't have much involvement in it. So we'd gone home, and then on Sunday, Sunday evening, I was in bed, and next thing, uh, a Land Rover landed at the house and said that you had to report in the morning, we're leaving at four o'clock for Ballinamore. It's a mission. Mm-hmm. So Leitrim. That was the first thing we knew about it, Claire. And we arrived in Athlone and we got kitted up and we had to bring a 72-hour kit and um, headed off to Ballinamore, still not aware of what was going on. Um, we were in the square in Ballinamore across from the Garda station around 5, 5 a.m. And the two uh, busloads of, of the young guards from Templemore arrived. There was briefings going on then at a higher level. And about 8 o'clock we got a brief just to say that we were carrying out searches. And it would be fair to say that that Don Tidy wasn't on our radar. We actually assumed because of the area, most of us had worked up there because some of us had been stationed in Ballyconnell just across the road. And we assumed that it was Shergar that we were looking for. So you weren't told what you were doing there? Absolutely not. Like, nobody was sure. And I don't even think they were at a higher level they were sure. It was either one or other. And the soldiers on the ground... A lot of us believed that this was Shergar that we were looking for. Extraordinary. So would you say it's fair to say that it was completely chaotic at that oh, time? Absolutely, you're putting it mildly. <laughs> because um, you were given coordinates and you went to a wood and um, we formed what would, we would call a skirmish line. That would be a straight line going into the wood. And we were about maybe five paces apart. And the idea was to keep in, keep in contact with each other. But once you went into the wood, it was like walking in a bog, if you ever walked in a bog, where your feet actually sink, sink to the ground. Yeah. So you had to bend down on your hunkers because you were going underneath these a type of Christmas-type trees. And you have to remember, we were badly equipped, we were badly clothed, we had no wet gear, and all the water was coming down. This was the 16th, this 13th of December, and it was raining, and all of the water was coming down on top of us. And as you got into the wood, it became pure black. So you lost sight and vision of the guy to your right and to your left. And sometimes you may become disoriented that you just didn't know where you were. And So you didn't, you didn't have the right equipment 
You didn't know what you were searching for. Absolutely. And you couldn't see anything. Yeah. And it was it was something like out it was like something in the dark ages ages. We just weren't prepared for for such a mission. And Claire asked PJ about the two lost lives. Don Tidy was found, as we heard there in, in the clip, mm. and brought home safely, but a soldier and a guard lost their lives. Yeah. Um, the guard, the recruit, Gary Sheehan, and 35-year-old Private Patrick Kelly. And you knew Patrick Kelly and you knew his family and you've kept in touch with them over the years. Exceptionally well. Um, Paddy and I had been to Lebanon in 81 and we were involved in another incident in Dinah Harper. An Irish soldier went missing and mum was killed. And... Um, so we, he was a kind of a mentor to me because I, I was only a 21-year-old. Came from college into the army, 21 years of age, and was in charge of a section of men. So Paddy used to tell me to calm down, Gosson. You know, relax, Gosson. And um, I, I, he lived down the road from me. And to say he was a gentleman was, was putting it mildly. Um, would Paddy have killed anybody? <laughs> Absolutely not. And, you know, this is the one thing that I always keep coming back to Claire. We were ill-prepared. And I say this in the sense that no Irish soldier that I know of in my 42-year service ever went out to kill anybody. And we went to Ballinamore with purely the intentions to search. But the killers of Paddy Kelly went to kill. They were prepared to kill. They had an exit route they planned, pre-planned everything and they were prepared to kill to get out. Mm-hmm. But we were never prepared to shoot. In the aftermath of this, uh, you had the funerals, the sad funerals of yeah. Gary Sheehan and Patrick Kelly, yeah. which, you know, people will see tonight. It's just such a poignant moment to see uh, Patrick Kelly's children standing by the side of the grave, a desperately sad moment and Gary Sheehan's family too. But... Don Tidy was found, a capital murder investigation mm. began, a fraught investigation and at one point the guard that surrounded a house in Clare Morris and IRA members escaped in front of their eyes. Now I want to play a clip from tonight's documentary where one of the guard that involved in the investigation talk about that moment. Are you disappointed that uh, the uh, fugitives were able to run out the front door past the men and into an open field and escape at half five in the evening? Well, of course, we're not naturally disappointed that they weren't caught there and then, but I don't think if you describe it that they ran through the men. As I say, they ran as our men approached. But they ran out the front door? They ran out the front door as our men were approaching from the sides on the road. And the field they ran into was actually an open field. It's not one of the... Yes, but this was in darkness, remember. Extraordinary. It's it, it's it's unbelievable, and um, like, why hadn't they the foresight to just hold, look for reinforcements, completely surround that building, and wait until the following day, because it was a safe house. The people in it were going nowhere; they were safe, so they believed. It was it like, but it's indicative of the times that was in it there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's hard for me to describe how unprofessional it was um, without offending various aspects of the organisation that I love so well. But the systems and the training, they weren't in place. I mean, we'll Absolutely see, not. We'll see in the documentary tonight as well how things changed after that. That's right. I suppose if you keep repeating mistakes, that's where when a problem truly arises. In this case, very sad loss of two lives, but it did prompt change. It did prompt change, but 
But here's something, clear. And if I was to go into Athlon today and there's a platoon of recruits in training um, and I said to them, who's Private Paddy Kelly? I could lay a wager of 100 euros that not one of those would have been told about Balnamore. Um, you know, so we don't educate even the recruits coming in today about our past and where we should be going in the future. That's that, that's a defence forces problem. Mm-hmm. Like, so you feel more should be done to remember him. I, it's not just to remember him, but like, it's it's to remind people of how dangerous this can be. Mm-hmm. Like, because we lost our innocence on the sixteenth at three o'clock on the sixteenth of December, nineteen eighty three, never to be given back to us. Former soldier PJ Higgins from today with Claire Byrne. And on Morning Ireland, the sound of childhood Christmases. Dublin's oldest Christmas market has reopened for the festive season. It's at Henry Street, one of the main shopping streets in the capital, and it extends to Mary Street as well. Here's a flavour of what you'll hear, courtesy of the RTE archives from 1985. Something that everyone hears <laughs> when they're down in Henry Street is people selling wrapping paper. Let's hear what it sounds like. The wrapping paper five for twenty. That's yeah. four for yeah, you. Yeah, but you share that. You're roaring. You're roaring. You don't. You don't talk. You're roaring. You're roaring. Yeah. Okay. yeah. The wrapping paper five for ten pence. No. Well, we're joined by Sadie Grace, chairperson of the Henry Street Christmas Traders Group, and Sadie has worked on the market for over fifty years. Sadie, you're very welcome. Good morning to Good you. Good morning. Um, Thank you. What does it mean to you all to be back, bigger and better this year? Oh, you know, it, it, it's just, it just makes everybody's Christmas. I mean, it, it, there's been so much doom and gloom around and so much uncertainty, you know, and it's, it's just great to be back. It's some kind of normality. Absolutely. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Yeah, and you've been in the market, as I say, you've worked there for over 50 years. This has been in your family for a very long time, Sadie. Will you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, my mother used to do it before me and, you know, it, it's just, I've just always been there. I've never. Last year was the first year, um, on December fourth, that I wasn't in Henry Street for almost sixty years. So it was it was very very strange, um, but I mean we've come a long way in all these years. I mean years ago we used to just have a breadboard with a leg on it that we used to, and everybody used to have just a very small uh, pitch to sell from, um, and mostly we used to sell cheeky Charlies and Starlights and blow up balloons and sell them on a stick. So, I mean, we've become, come a long, long way in that time, you know, and this year was great that we, you know, Dublin City Council are working, you know, well with our committee and they gave us new gazebos. So it's not too bad now and it's raining, at least we're covered and, you know, we can can sell in the rain. And it just transforms Henry Street, doesn't it? It just adds so much to the street. Well, it's, it's, it's uniformity as well, because, you know, before that, we used to all just have plastic coverings and it's, it was almost impossible to get the same for everybody to have the same. So it, it didn't look very good. But now that, you know, we all have the same gazebos and awnings and, you know, it, it's much it's much nicer looking, yeah. you know, and something we've been asking for for many, many years. And it's great that it's finally happened. And it creates a great buzz around that part of the city centre as well. And we heard the clip from the archive. You still shout out your your wares, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's part of a, 
you know. So it's it's been it's it's really really good. And I think I think the good thing for us, you know, over the years has been that we the public love us. You know, we hear it all the time from people coming into Henry Street, you know, saying, you know, they don't realise it's it's it, Christmas is so close until they see the stalls, and then it makes Christmas for a lot of people. So people still come up from the country to, just to see the stalls and, you know, to show their children that it's something that they grew up with. Because we used to have Country Man's Day on the 8th of December. And of course, like that's it, right. It, it genuinely was Country Man's Day because we used to be thronged, thronged with, with, with people from the country coming up to buy. Brilliant. So and Sadie, are, are your children people. involved in the in the markets as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My sons come up and help me now and my husband helps me and my sisters are still out there too. And so yeah, it is a family tradition and most of the stalls would be traditional, you know, that, that they would take over from their parents. So And most of them would be like that. The vast majority would, would be would be the same. Exactly. So it's and great, it's generational. Sadie Grace from Morning Ireland with Orgy Carvel. And on today with Claire Byrne, tackling food waste. Now, Ireland currently generates 1.27 million tonnes of food waste a year, with the average family throwing away up to €1,000 worth of food every year. Now, Food Cloud is a non-profit social enterprise. It links up businesses that have surplus food with charities and community groups that need it. And Food Cloud has asked some of the country's leading chefs to take part in an online series called All Taste, Zero Waste about the huge problem that food waste poses in Ireland. And two of the chefs involved in that online series, Holly Dalton, who's chef and director of Conbini Condiments, and Jess Murphy, head chef and owner of Kai Restaurant in Galway, join me now with their top tips for reducing food waste and also recipes on using food that we might normally throw in the bin. Uh, Good morning to you both. Thank you for joining us, Holly and Jess. Holly, we'll start with you. Your general tips for avoiding food waste start with storage. Well, probably start in the supermarket with only buy what you need. But when you bring it home, what what should you do when it comes to storage? Yeah, storage is massive. And like, you know, I'm not saying that I always do this. Uh, Like often I, you know, pull out the drawer of uh, my vegetable drawer and I have like, you know, herbs cemented to the bottom of the drawer. And I'm like, okay, that's uh, that's not great. Or the liquid cucumber. (laughs) So bad. Nasty. Um, Yeah, invest in Tupperware. Okay, because obviously I don't, and you know, I used to do this a lot as well, is like cling film everything. That's not good. Obviously, single-way plastic, single-waste plastic. We know that's bad. Invest in Tupperware. I also got these things. They're like made of beeswax. Um, and oh, you I can, have those. Yeah, they're yeah, great. Yeah. They're brilliant. You can wrap them around cheese, uh, things like that. Like I, I use a lot of cheese, so that's what I use my one for. Um, but definitely invest in Tupperware. And like you started with, like buy, only buy what you need. And if you find that you've just done a big shop, which like everybody does, I do a big shop every week as well. And then suddenly, you know, you find like, okay, this week's actually like really busy for me. I don't know if I'm going to get to cook all this stuff, like freeze it or like break it down and like, you know, portion it up. Or like, you know, you say like, okay, I need to incorporate this into my lunch now this day or my breakfast this day, you know, like, so try and plan ahead. If you think you're going to be busy, you know, don't leave it until Sunday morning and you're like, oh God, there's so much food here and I actually don't know what to do with it. (laughs) Yeah, it's Um, all about planning, isn't it, Jess? I'm sure you'd agree with that. Oh, 100%. And like the, the true fact is like never go shopping when you're starving either. Because for some reason you'll buy like 500 grams of chia seeds for no reason at all. <laughs> um, because, you know, new body, new you, big shop, new week, um, all that kind of stuff like kicks into it. So, yeah, it, it, it is, it's hard to 
just buy for what you need. But I kind of spent most of my time um, in the last lockdown um, hunting through the bargain bins. Um, stunning produce. We're talking about the ripest mangoes on earth. Um, beautiful peppers. It's basically what other people don't eat, which is really nice stuff like lemongrass and chili and everything like that in the bargain, the bargain bins. Uh, just on the cheese, because Holly said that she uses a lot of cheese. You have a tip for how to make the cheese last a bit longer. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, like, you know how you buy cheese and then you're like, oh, that's it. I'm not eating cheese again. I, like, save all the nubbins and I put them in a Ziploc bag and I chuck them in the freezer because if somebody comes around or you're making, like, cheese scones or anything like that, you can just actually, like, it doesn't matter what cheeses they are. They all go together really well if you melt them down and put them in a cheese scone or a quiche, you know? I did not know you could freeze cheese. Oh, no, Absolutely. But but not for consuming in the way you would fresh cheese, I assume, Holly. No, you wouldn't defrost the brie and have it with a glass yeah, of wine. No, I can, I can, that wouldn't be good. No, if you were like really desperate, yeah. Like if you, that was all you had going on, like maybe. Yeah, uh, you kind of would, but like especially in a toasty. But anyway, um, yeah, there's no lows. There's you, no lows. But Jess, you're not mad about the two for one deals? No, I hate them. I think they're a false economy. Um because, like, you buy, what are you going to do? Like, buy three bags of pears and you have, like, two out of one out of one bag. You know, just buy what you need. Mm-hmm. Like, like realistically, I mean, if you really love pears, you might have one a day, right? And then you have the odd day that you do a wild card day where you might not have the pear. So <laughs> buy four pears. You don't need three bags of, like, pears. Like. I, I need to know where you both stand. And Holly, you start uh, with this one for me on mould on food. Mm. OK, maybe this is like a bit controversial, but this is what I heard. I um, don't know if science is going to back me up here. But basically, <laughs> if a food is kind of mostly liquid based, right? For example, say like cottage cheese or if you have like a cordial or something in the fridge and there's mould on top, it's like, OK, that's gone. That's bad because basically mould like travels easier through liquid. Now, look. I'm not a scientist. This is just what I heard. But if it's, I feel like we're talking about cheese a lot, but it's definitely relevant. If it's hard, right, like a loaf of bread, if you have like a big loaf of bread and it's like unsliced and there's a bit of mould on the end, just cut that off. Jess Murphy and Holly White from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself in the storm. Take care till next time.